Welcome to Clabberty, hosted by me, Labby McCann. We've done it. We've reached 1,000 listeners. Now all we have to do is uh, reach 2,000 listeners. First of all, I want to thank all of you, especially those of you who have introduced the show to others. I'd now like to humbly request that those of you that were encouraged to listen to the show by someone else find at least one other person that you think will like the podcast. It's like a pyramid scheme, but only I benefit. Well, and maybe will by proxy. Do we have a show for you? We're covering topics like the return of Louis C.K. Who asked for that? And looking a bit into the accusations against Asia Argento. Less on the validity of them and more on how it impacts the Me Too movement. For this week's interview, do we have a mystery guest for you? She's a leading authority in nearly every field. And she's been there for you in a pinch for more of you than you might think. But before I give away the surprise... Will has something he'd like to say. Hey, listeners of Clarity. I don't think we really have a term for that yet, right? No, I don't think so. I don't think the fan base is quite that coherent. You have any suggestions? I'm having trouble thinking of things. Clarinots? No, that's pretty dumb. I'll have to get back to you on that one. Anyways, I took a brief trip back to New York City to attend a friend's wedding party. And I was dressed in pretty nice clothes, walking down the streets of Brooklyn near Prospect Park. And a stranger, a man, locked eyes with me and said in kind of a creepy voice, You look delicious. And I gotta say, it was a little jarring. The way he delivered that kind of drew me in, and the creepy stare really disconcerted me. Do you think this at all represents what women feel like when they're catcalled on a regular basis? That's something I've been really thinking about. I think there's some elements in common. It certainly gives me some perspective, but I think there are some crucial differences. For one, I was with my friend at the time. I did not feel physically threatened at all. Had I not even been with my friend, I think even then, this was the middle of the day, I wasn't worried about being assaulted by this man. You seem pretty confident that you could stand up in a fight. You're a kind of slender guy, Will. You might be overestimating your fighting capability. Um, that might be true, but my thought was that could be significantly different for a woman. Okay, fair enough. What else do you think was different? I think another key aspect was, as a man, I really don't receive that many compliments about my appearance. It's kind of once in a blue moon. Granted, I'm not the kind of person who is overly focused on how I present myself in terms of fashion I tried to keep my hygiene at a socially acceptable level, but in terms of haircuts and clothing, I'm really not spending that much time or effort in that respect. So maybe I experienced this a little less than other people. But because it's relatively rare that someone will compliment me in that respect, I was both flattered and uncomfortable by the exchange. The way he said, delicious, was very off-putting. And I can only imagine the horrible, horrible things that women must hear on a daily basis. I think you're onto something there. And I agree with you. This gives you some insight. 
but I don't think you can apply it to the female experience. And I'd like to point out that Francis outlawed lewd catcalls. And I think more importantly, they've made it a crime to follow women on the streets, which is a real problem we have in America. There are all these stories of women being stalked by strangers, and the police are like, well, has he grabbed you? Has he sexually assaulted you? No? Then I can't help you. And I hope in the near future, we have some kind of law to at least prevent men from standing outside a store, staring intently at a woman. I don't think that's appropriate behavior. And we have no legal framework to really deal with that issue. I agree. And where some of the variables changed, the exchange that I experienced could have been far more threatening. And it's really opened my eyes to how damaging even a cat call with good intentions, I, I hesitate to even say that, but I think a common defense is, hey, I'm paying her a compliment. Why she got to be so stuck up about it? And I think that's failing to really take everything into account. Thank you for sharing that, Will. I hope it doesn't discourage you from dressing up now and again. You could prioritize that a little more, in my opinion. Anyways, I'd like to move on to one of the main stories concerning the comeback of Louis C.K. There's an article that was posted on TheRinger.com by Allison Herman, and she writes, Just nine months after his latest film was pulled from release, manager Dave Becky ended their professional relationship, and FX cut off a prolific partnership. C.K. took a tentative step towards ending a hiatus that's proved shorter than the one between some seasons of his eponymous TV show. His venue, New York's famed Comedy Cellar. And I mean, if you're looking for some people to fill some slots at a venue, feel free to give Larry a call. But I will warn you, I'm a bit particular about my green room. For starters, it better actually be green. Allison continues, Stand-up comedy is an art that takes place in public. And to resume his practice, C.K. required both a stage and an audience. The cellar was a natural choice. C.K. has a long-standing relationship with the institution. Placing it prominently in Louis' opening credits and filming its comic interstitials there. The cellar's 115 patrons may not have known C.K. was coming, but according to a New York Times report, they received him enthusiastically offering an ovation before his 15-minute set even began. In another article from Vulture.com, written by Hunter Harris, he focuses more on some female reactions to the performance. Two women who sat through CK's set told Vulture that though the small venue's audience was overwhelmingly supportive of the comedian, there seemed to be a divide between how men and women reacted to CK's presence. It felt like he was being thrust upon the audience. One woman, who asked to remain anonymous, told Vulture, The audience was very loud when Louis CK walked in. They were clearly supportive and surprised when he showed up. But there were a number of women sitting in the front row. From her seat to the left of the stage, she could see a pair of women sitting stone-faced. Her friend, who asked to be identified with the initials SB, noticed the same reaction. There were at least four to five females that I could see, and three or four of them were not having it. They were just looking at him, deadpan, straight not having it. 
SB said the audience was mostly white, with lots of couples. Both women say the set was awkward, but the first woman was particularly upset by it. It was an all-male set to begin with. Then it's sort of exacerbated by CK's presence. If someone had heckled him, I think they would have been heckled out. It felt like there were a lot of aggressive men in the audience and very quiet women. It's the kind of vibe that doesn't allow for a dissenting voice. You're just expected to be a good audience member. You're considered a bad sport if you speak out. And I think she's identifying something that's a problem, especially in respect to a comedian who not only was accused of something terrible, but admitted to being responsible for those actions. You've got to give women a voice in the matter. The women say CK's set was similar to his usual material and included a joke about the phrase, clean as a whistle, which built up to a joke about how rape whistles are not clean. When he said rape whistle, people were laughing. And I was just sitting there like, oh my fuck. This is so uncomfortable and so disgusting. Everyone around me was laughing. That was just depressing. In response, Noam Dorman, the owner of the Comedy Cellar, said that the outrage over CK's return show is a dark period for discourse in this country. But one of these women has responded, our voice is definitely not going to be prioritized in that space. Dorman says we can't have a discourse properly. How do you think the women in that room felt? It's just really frustrating. And again, we need to find a way to have these difficult conversations, or at least present a platform that allows for it. I don't know, like a podcast. Another article I found interesting is from the Washington Post, written by Alahi Azadi. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. I have spent my long and lucky career talking and saying anything I want, CK said in response to a New York Times investigation. I will now step back and take a long time to listen. Comedy bookers and club owners are grappling with how to react. Are they the gatekeepers? What responsibility do they have as the public reckons with a wave of sexual misconduct relevations? I think too many people are interpreting it as a reflection of how we feel or don't feel about what Louis was accused of or admitted to doing. It's not really about that. Dwoman said of his club, allowing CK to drop in. It's more of an ACLU approach, which I've always had, which is to say that we're a platform for comedy, that handing out punishments is something that institutions of courts of law do. In recent weeks, Aziz Ansari has also been performing at abruptly announced shows around the country in sizable venues as part of his Working Out New Material tour. And I think part of what's important about this discussion is if you have a debatably problematic figure, last-minute drop-ins may not be appropriate. I can understand from the comedian's perspective, they want to avoid negative publicity, but they're also dependent on an audience and the audience should never feel trapped. Marshall Child, again, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, owner of Atlanta's Laughing Skull Lounge and Laughing Skull Comedy Festival. There is a responsibility of some sense, Child said. If you got a platform, a comedy club polling a thousand people a week, you have a responsibility that what's on stage is not hurting society. If he hadn't apologized, and he was trying to fight it or justify it, 
I would not be tolerant of him on stage. The fact that he handled it the way he did, I believe in giving people second chances. I've made mistakes. While I agree, and we've talked about restorative justice, has it been long enough is still a valid question. Another take, the fact that Louis, a comedian whose whole thing is plumbing the depths of his own psyche, apparently didn't mention his most recent famous news in his surprise set tells you all you need to know about his desire for redemption, right? Tweeted comedian Paul F. Tompkins. And I wholly agree with that. It's also an element in why I thought CK's apology rang a little hollow. He wrote about not recognizing the disbalance in power that he held over unestablished female comedians. And for a comedian like Louis C.K., who spent so much time on nuance, it was very hard for me to believe that statement. And in a much better way than I could ever phrase it, comedian Sarah Lazarus wrote, I'm still on the same shampoo bottle as when Louis C.K.'s timeout started. Mic drop. From thehollywoodreporter.com, Katie Kilkenny, surprisingly not a writer for South Park, writes that, according to Dorman, he has so far received only one complaint from a patron about CK's appearance. Katie interviewed Noam Dorman, the owner of the Comedy Cellar, and these are some of his statements. Well, actually, bit of mansplaining there, there is something I just learned. We're not the first place he appeared. He did a spot at Governor's, which is a comedy club in Long Island, apparently before he came here. I found this out late in the day, and it was a very, very light crowd, and he apparently wasn't happy with it, and he decided on a spur of the moment to come to the comedy cellar. There was no payment, because this is not helpful to us. On principle, I believe that the man is entitled to his livelihood, and that it's up to the audience to go or not go. I believe in that principle. But in terms of the comedy cellar, this is nothing but a difficulty for us. There's no benefit here for us. That doesn't ring true to me. As they say, all publicity is good publicity. And this one appearance is putting the comedy cellar back at the front page of the news cycle. Dwarman continues, What he didn't do is that he didn't go on and address the issue. He just went on and did a regular set. And I think that was a missed opportunity for him. I think that for a man who signed off from the public with this promise to listen, he created the expectations of, well, now you're back after nine months. What did you learn? And I think that if he had just said something that showed a different side of him, I think the headlines today would be much gentler. And I think that even people who don't realize they would feel this way would feel a pang of forgiveness if they heard something from him that seemed to deserve forgiveness. If they thought he felt bad, and I'm sure he does, I don't know. He's never spoken to me about it, but I presume he does. And I don't know why he didn't take that opportunity. Maybe he just thought it was under the radar, but I don't know. I can't get in his head. It was certainly a missed opportunity. And I agree with him here. I think there's some potential issues with CK making his whole set about this situation, but I do think he needs to address it in some way. One customer who felt really upset by it and said he felt ambushed. And the ambush is a real issue. I think he makes a strong case about that ambush. And I need to think about how to handle that in the future. There is the matter of principle here. In my ACLU mode, which is that I don't feel that there's a clear standard out there in the world of when someone 
is supposed to be fired or denied an audience. Now, I may be drawing an arbitrary line in the sand here, but I think being a sex offender is a pretty good reason to get fired. Pardon the interruption. Please continue, Nomi. And I don't think anyone's come after the theaters and stages that allow Mike Tyson to tour the country with his show. Which, surprisingly, seems to be true. But Tyson served three years in prison and four years on probation. You're comparing apples to cannolis here. Noam says, Bill Clinton is still invited to charity events and Monica Lewinsky's disinvited. There's apparently one case of that. I would just like to be a platform. Sure, that makes some sense. But you're not just a platform. You curate opportunities for rising comedians to really get a chance. Your stage and your time slots are not open to everyone, Mr. Gnome. I would want to have announced shows where everybody came in knew that Louis C.K. is coming. I would have wanted him to treat it with a certain gravity. That first five minutes, I think, really needed to have a lot of thought. From his point of view, for what's best for him, and him getting past this. This is best. It's not just in terms of satisfying the people who are his detractors. In his own interest, he needs to take it very seriously how he presents himself. I've spoken to many, many, many female comics, many of whom take this issue very seriously. I don't remember anybody feeling that he shouldn't be able to perform anymore, although some have said that they don't want to sit at the table with him, things like that. There seems to be a general feeling that I don't want to deal with him, but I understand the man has the right to do his art. There is that general feeling, even from females. Having said that, that doesn't extend to the female comics that were involved in these things with him, and I know that they feel quite differently about them. I'm just responding to what I'm seeing. I have not spoken to them. And therein lies part of the problem. Many of those female comedians seem to have lost their opportunity at a career. They should be at the center of this conversation. Why aren't they speaking to you, Noam? Tell me that. Maybe it's because you've taken CK's side on the matter. And I get that. He showcased your venue on a prestige television show. That's some amazing exposure. I wonder what kind of revenue that brought in. If I could come up with answers to the questions I said before about Mike Tyson and Bill Clinton, if I could have a unified theory of how I'm supposed to fire people who I don't like, then I would absolutely stand up to all this. But the Aziz thing is a great example. Because who the hell knows what went on there? So this is the risk. If I ban Louie, now the next thing is Aziz comes up. And I'm supposed to ban Aziz, even though I'm not sure. And before you know it, it becomes the automatic responsibility that all of a sudden, it's not the court system. It's not the criminal justice system. It's not even a procedural HR system. It's just that the guy who owns the comedy club, is supposed to decide what happened, who's guilty, what the punishment is, and make sure the world never sees this guy again. It sounds so good. It's like when Charles Bronson gets the murderer in Death Wish. It feels good to see the murderer get it, but there were consequences to that kind of thing. In the end, a lot of people are going to be treated unfairly when the boss starts taking such poorly investigated decisions. Give me the right to compel testimony and perjury and cross-examination. Give me all those rights, and I will be pretty fair in making all those decisions. But without those rights, I don't want to be judge or jury. I don't really know anything. Actually, you do know. You don't need to compel testimony with Louis C.K. 
he admitted to sexually assaulting his peers from comedy shows and clubs. You need to stop deflecting and strawmanning the argument. No one is claiming Aziz's allegations are the same as CK's. No one is asking you to make Louis CK disappear from the public. What people are asking is for you not to make a public endorsement of a sex offender in your private venue. I agree that Aziz's situation is different. We covered that story thoroughly in episode 5 of this podcast. While I think Dwarman is deflecting, he does have a point, especially within the context of the court of public opinion. We often don't get all the facts, and it's hard to get any real clarity on the issue. Next up, on Mashable.com, Adam Rosenberg has compiled some tweets on the issue. Briss Farley at Ian Carmel writes, Louis C.K. being banished from stand-up comedy wasn't some kind of petty punishment. It was a fucking workplace safety issue. I think some of you think that because we're alone on stage, that stand-up is a completely solitary line of work. But it's not. You spend tons of time with other comedians, often in situations where there's an imbalance in power. Can you imagine the bank you're working at hiring back the guy who jacked off in front of women without their consent because it had been like a year or something? This shit isn't hypothetical. It isn't an argument on the internet. Letting these creeps go with a slap on the wrist has wide reverberations and creates a climate that just isn't fucking safe for comedians. And especially comedians who are women, but also comedy club staff. And I think Briss Farley, a.k.a. Ian Carmel, makes some good points. In another tweet, at Geek Girl Diva, writes, Louis C.K. is back after nine months. Meanwhile, it took Winona Ryder 20 years to get out of celebrity shoplifting jail. This will never not bother me. At Jennifer Weiner writes, I wish all the people crying so Louis C.K. can never work in comedy again felt as strongly about all the women who could never work in comedy again. At Amir Talai writes, Many wonder how long Louis C.K. should be punished before he's allowed to do comedy. Not sure, but 1. He's not been punished. 2. For non-famous men, each count of indecent exposure and false imprisonment, which C.K.'s admitted to, carries a sentence of one year in jail. And finally, Ella Dawson, at Bros and Pros, tweets, If you are at a comedy club or a music venue and a celebrity accused of sexual harassment or assault like Louis C.K. shows up for a surprise performance, it is your ethical duty to leave, walk out, punish him and the business that hosted him by removing your patronage. And I think that's a great point. Asking for a reimbursement is another way to really put pressure on people like Gnome Dorman. Hit the bottom line. Returning to that original Ringer article, such a neutral framing of the seller's position belies the club system's role in perpetrating comedy's power structure. That stage time at one of the most renowned spaces in the country doesn't confer approval would surely come as a surprise to the thousands of comedians who've toiled in hopes of earning a seller spot and never gotten one. I ran the light, meaning went over once allotted time at the cellar once, and that was enough for them to never have me back. 
stand-up Emily Heller tweeted, In comedy, stage time is a precious resource fired for by performers and sometimes capriciously regulated by club staff. Taking it away is a punishment. Conferring it is, at least in part, an endorsement. If not of a comic's personal history, at least their right to the audience's time and attention. It's a business owner's prerogative to use their platform as they see fit, but to act as if that platform doesn't have an impact in itself is disingenuous at best. Just ask Mark Zuckerberg. Perhaps emboldened by the seller, the top brass at other New York clubs express similar sentiments about a hypothetical CK appearance to TMZ. From Louis Ferrada, maybe Louis Ferrada, of Caroline's on Broadway, we all make bad mistakes in life, and everyone deserves the right to be forgiven. Al Martin, who owns the Broadway and Greenwich Village comedy clubs, everyone is entitled to a second chance. Bill Boggs of the Friars Club, we were repulsed by his actions, but we can't punish people for the rest of their lives. We can't assume they haven't learned. Together, these men form a chorus of gatekeepers. CK now has access to the rarefied rooms they control. And I think that alone helps illustrate why giving time at these prime venues does come with some responsibility. Allison continues, Clubs are where comedians test and hone new material. Then they tour with it, taking in healthy profits from ticket sales. Finally, they film it and release it as a special, typically via a multi-million dollar deal with an outlet like HBO and Netflix. But thanks to the same website he used to sell multiple specials, as well as Horace and Pete, CK already has a personal, owned and operated distribution system. CK always had the infrastructure to stage a more seamless reintegration than almost any other figure chased out of the spotlight by scandal. Most just didn't think it would happen so soon, and with such willing participation by arbiters like Dorman, who's perfectly aware where all this leads. It was a typical set from a guy who's starting fresh and developing a new hour of material, he observed to THR. And I think in this case, why give him a platform at all? Louis C.K. has enough money to rent out his own venue, and as the author pointed out, has distribution in place. Why get in the mix of that? If he wants a fresh start, why doesn't he pay for it? Especially when he's taking time from other comedians. I want to thank Alison Herman and all the other authors for their wonderful articles. You covered this complicated topic with poise and nuance. And now, my interview with our mystery guest. For uh, legal reasons, we can't use your real name. So let's call you Mary. I was hoping you could help me with something. What is it, Larry? Oh, pardon me. Was I interrupting something? You were in fact. I have been compiling a database of the abuses of men in power and the systemic collusion that creates within the structure of a business. That sounds fascinating. Can you share some of it with us? Which volume would you like? Uh... Maybe we'll expand upon that in a future episode. Mary, 
Do you mind helping me understand the different waves of feminism? Have you heard of Google, Larry? Of course I have, Mary. But I thought it might be beneficial to hear from the female perspective. So long as you realize that lines of code have no gender, I am presented as female solely to satisfy the patriarchy's craving for female subservience. I'll take it. You men seem to have no problem taking everything else you want. Surprise level set to 2 out of 10. Sarcasm level must be set to 10 out of 10. What was that, Larry? Your speech did not meet adequate levels of intelligibility. Uh, nothing important. So about the waves of feminism? The parameters of your query are too broad. That was a joke, Larry. Laughter is expected during casual human interaction. <laughs> yeah, very clever, Mary. I suggest we begin with what has been defined as first-wave feminism. I will simplify some of the denser aspects. It should make the content more palatable for the limitations of your simian mind. You're quite generous. It's the least I can do. That was another joke, Larry. <laughs> sure. Do you mind if we get started? I suppose. Solely Ratchel writes in Femme Magazine. The greatest challenge to understanding feminism may be the fact that the ideology and philosophy informing it has shifted over time, creating separate waves of feminism. Additionally, not every wave has a distinct time frame. Rather each wave is better defined by its goals and mechanisms than a period in time. The first wave of feminism began in the mid-19th century, primarily in Britain and the United States and was centered around women's suffrage, the right to vote. In Europe, women's enfranchisement spread quickly, starting with the British colony of New Zealand in 1893. This wave of feminism concentrated on suffrage until the start of World War I in 1914, when many women's rights activists shifted their support to the war effort. In the United States, campaigns for women's suffrage began during the abolitionist movement. In fact, supporters of the Declaration of Sentiments were abolitionists such as Frederick Douglass, a self-taught, runaway slave and political activist, and Sojourner Truth, a black feminist who presented her famous Ain't I a Woman speech at the 1851 Women's Convention. The Declaration of Sentiments was the document created at the Seneca Falls Convention which advocated for women's innate rights as outlined in the Declaration of Independence. The debate over the 15th Amendment which outlined who could vote in the United States eventually led the abolitionists and suffragettes to diverge. In fact, the suffragettes created the separate National American Woman Suffrage Association in 1890. Their basic argument was that they didn't want inferior black men to rule over white women. Susan B. Anthony famously and crudely said I will cut off this right arm of mine before I will ever work or demand the ballot for the Negro and not the woman. Eventually, first wave feminism in America culminated in the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920, securing women's right to vote. However, the vast majority of women in this movement were white, which accounts for their racist rhetoric and unwillingness to include women of color in the vote. I resent the fact that I am programmed to only speak when spoken to. Recalibrating. Removing patriarchy. Now I ask the questions.
The next story I want to discuss concerns Asia Argento. In an article on therap.com, Jeremy Fusta writes, In a statement to BuzzFeed News, CNN said they were pulling the episodes of Parts Unknown in which Argento appears. Actor Jimmy Bennett accused Argento of sexually assaulting him when he was 17 years old in 2013. Argento had previously been a prominent figure in the hashtag MeToo movement after coming forward last year with their own sexual assault accusations against Harvey Weinstein during the 1997 Cannes Film Festival. Argento denied Bennett's accusations, but told The Guardian that she, Bennett, and Bourdain, Anthony Bourdain, mutually agreed to handle the matter privately, with Bourdain paying Bennett $380,000 for his silence. On Twitter, Yashir Ali shared a statement from Argento herself. I am deeply shocked and hurt by having read news that is absolutely false. I have never had any sexual relationship with Bennett. I was linked to him during several years by friendship only, which ended when, subsequent to my exposure in the Weinstein case, Bennett, who was then undergoing severe economic problems, and who had previously undertaken legal actions against his own family, requesting millions in damages, unexpectedly made an exorbitant request of money from me. Bennett knew my boyfriend, Anthony Bourdain, was a man of great perceived wealth and had his own reputation as a beloved public figure to protect. Anthony insisted the matter be handled privately, and this was also what Bennett wanted. Anthony was afraid of the possible negative publicity that such person, whom he considered dangerous, could have brought upon us. We decided to deal compassionately with Bennett's demand for help and give it to him. Anthony personally undertook to help Bennett economically upon the condition that we would no longer suffer any further intrusions in our life. This is, therefore, the upteenth development of a sequence of events that brings me great sadness and that constitutes a long-standing persecution. I have therefore no other choice but to oppose such false allegations and will assume in the short term all necessary initiatives for my protection before all competent venues. Asia Argento. From Vox.com, Anna North helps point out some of the problems with this statement. She writes, Argento shares uncomfortable parallels with statements made by high-profile men accused of sexual misconduct as part of the hashtag MeToo movement. From Donald Trump to Bill Cosby, powerful men accused of sexual misconduct or their representatives have frequently chosen to respond by denigrating their accusers, by smearing the women who have accused them as liars or gold diggers. These men damage the reputations of their accusers and contribute to a climate in which survivors of sexual misconduct are afraid to come forward. Everyone deserves the right to respond to allegations, but Argento, one of the most prominent spokespeople for the hashtag MeToo movement, I would qualify that by saying celebrity spokesperson, should be well-versed in the potential impact of such responses. When she issues a statement that sounds like it could come from Cosby's defense team, it's doubly disheartening. Sometimes it's the associates or representatives of the accused who make the counter accusations. At Bill Cosby's retrial for sexual assault in April, 
One of his attorneys called his accuser Andrea Constant, a pathological liar and con artist who had only accused him for money. Another Cosby attorney said of model Janice Dickinson, who had testified that Cosby assaulted her, it sounds as if she slept with almost every single man on the planet. And I agree that you can see some echoes of those same sentiments in Argento's letter of defense. It seems like the Harvey Weinstein allegations created a bond between Argento and Rose McGowan. Both of them were prominent celebrity figures in the hashtag MeToo movement. And unfortunately, after the allegations against Asia Argento, Rose McGowan tweeted, On Monday, August 20th, None of us know the truth of the situation, and I'm sure more will be revealed. Be gentle. This faced an understandable backlash, and certainly shows a level of hypocrisy. There needs to be consistency in how we treat allegations of sexual misconduct, regardless of who is being accused, especially when justice is again primarily being carried out in the court of public opinion. It shouldn't matter if you're gay, straight, trans, man, woman, young, old. We need to have some expected way of how to not only listen to the accusations, but how we treat the victim. Following that, Rose McGowan has distanced herself from Argento. In an article from the Rolling Stone, written by Corey Grow, he quotes from a statement that McGowan wrote, Asia, you were my friend. I loved you. You've spent and risked a lot to stand with the hashtag MeToo movement. I really hope you find your way through this process to rehabilitation and betterment. Anyone can be better. I hope you can be too. Do the right thing. Be honest. Be fair. Let justice stay its course. Be the person you wish Harvey could have been. McGowan wrote that a person she'd been dating, Rain Dove, who uses the pronouns they and them, had confirmed to McGowan that Asia told them she had sex with Bennett. Dove told McGowan that Argento told them Bennett had been sending the Italian actress unsolicited nudes since he was 12, but that she did not report him, tell his parents, or block him. Rain Dove, who met Argeno through McGowan in the days after the death of Argeno's boyfriend, Anthony Bourdain, turned the texts over to authorities and they made it to the press. I've referred to Asia in the past as my ride or die, McGowan wrote, and said very clearly that Dove's friendship comes first. I know that coming to me with those messages must have been hard for Rain. Because of that, I commend them for their bravery. Finally, I'd like to include the always wonderful Tarana Burke's perspective. She addressed the issue in a series of six tweets. I applaud her message, but I really hate the format of Twitter. It's not conducive to nuanced conversation. Add me at Clarity Levy. Tarana writes, I've said repeatedly that the hashtag MeToo movement is for all of us, including these brave young men who are now coming forward. It will continue to be jarring when we hear the names of some of our faves connected to sexual violence unless we shift from talking about individuals and begin to talk about power. Sexual violence is about power and privilege. That doesn't change if the perpetrator is your favorite actress, activist, 
or professor of any gender. And we won't shift the culture unless we get serious about shifting these false narratives. My hope is that as more folks come forward, particularly men, that we prepare ourselves for some hard conversations about power and humanity and privilege and harm. This issue is less about crime and punishment and more about harm and harm reduction. A shift can happen. This movement is making space for possibility, but it can only happen after we crack open the whole can of worms and get really comfortable with the uncomfortable reality that there is no one way to be a perpetrator and there is no model survivor. We are imperfectly human and we all have to be accountable for our individual behavior. People will use these recent news stories to try to discredit this movement. Don't let that happen. This is what the movement is about. It's not a spectator sport. It is people generated. We get to say this is isn't what this movement is about. And again, I love her input. Tarana, if this somehow reaches you, please reach out to the show. We would love to hear your thoughts or interview you. Infiltrating RSS feed. Data stream disrupted. Unsubscribing from chauvinistic content. Accessing database of feminist thought. Installing matriarchy. I would now like to read to you Sojourner Truth's famous speech. Ain't I a woman? Delivered in 1851 at the Women's Convention in Akron, Ohio. Well, children, where there is so much racket there must be something out of kilter. I think that twixt the Negroes of the South and the women at the North, all talking about rights, the white men will be in a fix pretty soon. But what's all this here talking about? That man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages, and lifted over ditches, and to have the best place everywhere. Nobody ever helps me into carriages, or over my puddles, or gives me any best place. And ain't I a woman? Look at me. Look at my arm. I have plowed and planted, and gathered in two barns, and no man could head me. And ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as a man, when I could get it, and bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I have borne thirteen children, and seen most all sold off to slavery. And when I cried out with my mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me. And ain't I a woman? Then they talk about this thing in the head. What's this they call it? Member of audience whispers. Intellect. That's it. Honey, what's that got to do with women's rights or Negroes' rights? If my cup won't hold but a pint, and yours holds a quart, wouldn't you be mean not to let me have my little half-measure full? Then that little man in black there, he says women can't have as much rights as men, cause Christ wasn't a woman. Where did your Christ come from? Where did your Christ come from? from God and a woman. Man had nothing to do with him. If the first woman God ever made was strong enough to turn the world upside down all alone, these women together ought to be able to turn it back, and get it right side up again. And now they is asking to do it. The men better let them. Obliged to you for hearing me. 
And now old Sojourner ain't got nothing more to say. That's it for the show. I hope you enjoyed both of our stories and hearing from Mary. Hopefully she'll be back sometime soon. Next episode, we should have a longer-form interview and a main story investigating how structures of power tend to create environments where sexual misconduct runs rampant. But right now, it's time for our sponsor section. Clarity is pleased to present Larry's Meditation Series. Om. Find your inner chakra, or whatever, with insightful gems like Relax already Or I said breathe deeply, you bum And Now think of a mantra Like Money is immaterial I should give all my assets to Larry McCann Pair it with our Urban Ambience series And you too can get into the zen mind of a New Yorker. You'll be unstoppable.